this off. Okay. All right. Okay, so I'm going to go through housekeeping issues real quick. This is for everyone who's here, but everyone who's off-site as well, too. And these are all things we have to um, to uh, run through real quick. Um, uh, my name is Justin Montgomery. I'm a nurse practitioner and the project director for this um, for the uh, Advancing Competency for Geriatric Care on Rural New England. Um, this is a, a project that's funded by the Health Resources Services Administration. It allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive education program targeted at the nursing staff. We emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. Um, we're uh, excited to welcome to this uh, next issue in geriatric health and clinic, clinical nursing insight series, which takes place monthly. Um, Mary Sue, Sue Turner, who I've worked with for a long time, uh, and is a staunch advocate for the topic that um, she's going to be presenting today, traumatic brain injury in older adults, uh, is both um, a great clinician and also somebody I'm excited to hear talk. Um, in order to receive educational credits for this program, you must be signed in, so be sure that you signed in the attendance sheet. Um, if your handwriting is not legible, then you won't get any credit. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month. An instruction sheet on how to access your online transcript is included in the information you received. This explains how to access your online transcript. The Center for Continuing Education no longer produces paper certificates. You have to stay for 80% of this in order to receive credit. Neither our speakers nor any member of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict events regarding this activity. So Mary Sue is not going to make a million dollars off of doing Aww. this presentation, which is going to be devastating to her because I'm sure that's what she was counting on. Um, any product, service, or company being discussed, displayed in conjunction with this activity does not imply that there is real or implied endorsement by the ANCC or Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. You should have received an evaluation form and a data form that we will need back from you in order for us to continue to receive funding through this grant. We need to provide them the information that we are requesting on the form. If you are at a remote site, please hand this form to your site liaison at the end of the session. If you have a cell phone, silence it now or pager or any of the other thousands of electronic devices. Um, remote sites, mute your audio if you would please, but if you have a question during the presentation, please unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention by raising or waving your hand. Um, today's presenter, Mary Sue, welcome. Thank you. Come on. And she, Thank you. you. Use the, uh, yeah. Is, is this working? It's working well. Can everyone off-site hear me too? You have to unmute. I'm great. Let me know. Great, thank you. Okay, first of all, I apologize to everyone for not having a PowerPoint presentation. I really dislike them, and I prefer interactive um, presentations. I realize that's hard off-site, so if you have any questions during any part of this, please unmute and, and ask your questions, okay? And the other thing I'm going to tell you is that <clears throat> the research that I'm going to present is available if you'd like the abstracts yes. or you know more specific information, please email me and I'd be happy to send you anything that you're interested in, okay? All right. Sorry. In case you don't know, I'm a speech language pathologist and I specialize in TBI, um, stroke, dementia, and the outpatient area. And um, I work as, as most of us do in speech in the inpatient arena too. 
and I'll, I'll refer to that sometime later. Um, what I'm planning to do is to first of all provide some definitions to refresh everybody's memory about TBI, you know, including the different types of traumatic brain injuries, and then to give you a, a research overview of TBI and of time to tell you a little bit about what I do and what my colleagues do in the outpatient area. Okay? All right, first of all, TBI defined is an alteration in brain function or other evidence of brain pathology caused by an external force. It is not of a degenerative or congenital nature and produces a diminished or altered state of consciousness, resulting in an impairment of cognitive abilities and or physical functioning. It can also result in the disturbance of behavioral or emotional functioning. It may be temporary or permanent and cause partial or total functional disability or psychosocial maladjustment. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge definition. In 1997, um, the, the government expanded the definition of acquired brain injury to broaden it beyond trauma effects, which was great because it also expanded the idea that traumatic brain injury can be cured easily, that it's not chronic, and so recognize that it's a, it can be a chronic injury. Okay, so acquired brain injury, ABI, includes TBI, tumors, blood clots, strokes, seizures, toxic exposures, infectious infections such as encephalopathy, metabolic disorders, neurotoxic poisoning, and lack of oxygen to the brain. <clears throat> That's huge. <laughs> um, so, an injury to the brain occurring after birth and not hereditary, congenital, or degenerative, and the injury commonly results in a change in neuronal activity, which affects the physical integrity, the metabolic activity, or the functional ability of the cell itself. Okay? So this term does not refer to brain injuries induced by birth trauma. That was made very clear in 1997. And more than external insults, the definition of acquired brain injury also includes internal brain insults, such as subdural hematomas, you know, and other effects of traumatic brain injuries. So acquired brain injury can be mild, moderate, or severe, and include impairments in one or more areas, including cognition, which is my area, um, and involves speech and language communication, memory, attention and concentration, reasoning and abstract thinking. The definition of physical function in 1997 included ambulation, vision, hearing, and balance, as well as psychosocial behavior, including social skills, anger management, and impulsivity. Um, our area in speech-language cognition also includes vision and hearing screens. So we, in conjunction with physical therapy and occupational therapists, and occupational therapy also address vision and hearing. This is an interesting statistic. 1.4 to 2.4 million people sustain a traumatic brain injury in the U.S. every year. I found different numbers depending on where I went <laughs> in the research. It's huge. And the highest rates are in the following groups. Zero to four-year-olds, 15 to 19-year-olds, and adults aged 65 years and older. The highest percentage of injuries in the older population come from falls, yes, 35.2%. 
actually over the, the whole range of traumatic brain injured people, falls are the highest. Then motor vehicle accidents, 17.3%. And then it says struck by and against events. So I think that's, it's not assault though, so I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that, and that's 16.5%. Um, <clears throat> maybe you know pedestrians who are hit by a car would be in that group, I'm assuming, and then assaults are 10%. So 5.3 million people in our country are living with permanently altered mental or neurological states with post-concussive symptoms. That's huge. And this is a, you know, this is, I'll get on my, my soapbox now. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hugely underserved population, and we need a lot of more, we need, we need more um, concerted services and um, people who triage brain injured people because it's, um, you know, it's a huge problem. Um, to now, to define post-concussive sy symptoms, they include headache, dizziness, vomiting, sleep disturbance, memory problems, personality changes, irritability, depression, problem-solving difficulties, and reduced attention span. That's a lot of symptoms. And so when you see the diagnosis of post-concussive syndrome, <clears throat> you'll know that the symptoms are pretty broad. Any questions so far? Comments? Okay. All right, the definition of mild TBI, because there are three levels, is loss of consciousness for less than 30 minutes or no loss of consciousness, a Glasgow coma scale of 13 to 15, post-traumatic amnesia for less than 24 hours, and temporary or permanently altered mental or neurological state with post-concussive symptoms, which is very interesting. Because you would think in mild TBI, the word permanent wouldn't be there. <laughs> but even with mild cognitive impairments, the, um, the symptoms can go on for many, many years. They're chronic, as I said before. Um, and I can review the, the Glasgow coma scale afterwards, too. So moderate TBI, the coma is greater than 20 to 30 minutes, less than 24 hours, with a GCS of 9 to 12, possible skull fracture slash bruising or bleeding, and signs on EEG, CAT, or MRI scans, with some long-term problems in one or more areas described previously. So that's the definition of moderate TBI. <clears throat> then severe, as you would guess, coma for greater than 24 hours, often lasting days or weeks, or months, as we've seen, oftentimes here, um, a GCS of eight or less, bruising, bleeding in the brain, signs on EEG, CAT or MRI scan, and long-term impairments. And I would say we see a lot of our elderly population in the moderate to severe ranges, <clears throat> because we usually when they're injured, it's more severe, and they often have bleeds, um, subdurals and other bleeds from the falls. All right, then there's single incident versus repetitive mild TBI, or they call them subconcussive injuries. Here's the current research. It's mostly conducted with the military, you know, in, in uh, vet veterans hospitals, and athletes, of course. Research is supportive of increased risk of dementia-like symptoms after concussive injuries, particularly in males, maybe because of the population they're researching, <laughs> but I think you know men typically you know with this type of injury tend to be risk takers and very physical. 
Okay, with the additive risk of occurrence with each additional concussion. <clears throat> um, I don't know how many of you saw the, there have been PBS specials and all kinds of programs about the, uh, the football injuries, concussive injuries, that have become, you know, quite serious, especially around age 40 in males. The, the, something called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, changes um, include the presence of neurofibrillary degeneration distinct from other pathologies like Alzheimer's. But the onset is between ages 30 and 50, especially at age 40 for the research. This is the, you know, like the football concussive injuries, for example. <clears throat> With the aging population, survivors of moderate to severe TBI have reduced cognitive status, reduced physical capability, as you would expect, reduced levels of social interaction and independence than normal aging peers. They also have increased anxiety and sleep disturbance. This patient population lose the ability to complete more complex tasks. You know, when, when they say complex, they're referring to things like driving or shopping, which to us aren't that complex. But consider an elderly person with a traumatic brain injury, those can be very complex tasks. <clears throat> However, interestingly, according to the research, for single incidents and moderate to severe TBI in the elderly, there's no long-term risk of Parkinson's disease up to 10 years after the injury, which is interesting. Not something you'd expect. You know, we've all heard of Muhammad Ali and his Parkinson's and all that. Um, also, there is not a strong association between single incidence TBI and later development of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So that's an interesting research finding. <clears throat> so also with the elderly population, Psychosocial issues confound treatment. I'm glad Peggy's here, too, because we're going to talk about that. With long-term negative outcomes. <clears throat> issues include the coexistence of PTSD, EDOH, alcohol or drug addiction, depression, and or suicide risk. Referrals for psychological and psychiatric evaluations are advised, according to the research. Good luck with that right now here, but we're working on it. <laughs> Progress has been observed with a combination of cognitive, behavioral, and cognitive linguistic therapy. How many of you are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy or the definition of it? Okay, good. In case you're not, and Peggy can jump in here too, it's like an action-oriented psychosocial therapy that focuses on reducing negative behavioral patterns, maladaptive behaviors, is that correct? And, um, you know, unwanted limitations to restructuring your brain and to getting yourself healed again. That's basically it. I personally have not observed it, but I'd love to, because if we're working in conjunction with these CBT people, we pretty much should know what they're doing. And I think Karen Gillock is here at Hitchcock, and she does this. I don't know of anybody else. Do you? Well, there are people who do kind of behavioral therapy. I don't know that they focus on people after TBIs. Right. So, That's right. It's for psych... Right, for schizophrenia or for OCD, well, for, for whatever, anxiety. Okay. And I think that's changing because I think Karen has been involved more with this population more recently and um, with brain tumor patients, that kind of thing. So, which is good. All right, research, <clears throat> excuse me, research also indicates an increased suicide risk with TBI, dementia, and people who are 65 plus years of age. I'm getting awfully close there. Uh, there's not enough current research on the combined histories of TBI and dementia with regard to depression and suicide risk. 
They're saying that ongoing screening and monitoring of these patients is needed. Um, everybody knows what the Glasgow Coma Scale is, right? What they, they've, they've modified it over the years. You know, so now you have to look at best eye, eye response, best verbal response, and best motor response. Um, and there are four characteristics under best eye, five under verbal, and six under motor, so that total of 15 points can be earned. Um, and I think that the GCS, the Glasgow Coma Scale, is used early on after trauma to kind of determine what the, the level of the, of the patient's uh, functioning is. We also in rehab use the Rancho's Los Amigos scale to get more finely tuned um, as to how the patients are reacting to their environment. All right, back to the issue of falls as the most frequently reported cause of TBI in the elderly. Even with minor blows to the head, increased injury is often secondary to potential SDH presenting after the initial fall. We have subarachnoids, subdurals, you know, there are tons of bleeds that result from falls. Unfortunately, reduced rates of intensive rehab are, observed in old, are not observed in older patients after TBI. Our re re reduced rates are observed. So we're not as vigilant with this population after TBI, especially if they're associated with the onset of dementia rather than symptoms of brain injury. I've got a story for you. I had a dementia group here some years ago before we had the memory cafe. And so I was working with a bunch of, a group of patients. And one gentleman um, had a diagnosis of organic brain syndrome because the neurologist didn't really know what it was. It was kind of a dementia, but kind of not a dementia. He had a different presentation. And uh, across the six months or so that I worked with him, he started with no speech to increasingly more verbal output. <laughs> and more awareness and receptive awareness, too, and, and memory, better memory. And um, it was determined that he had had a fall that was unwitnessed, and they missed it. And uh, so it changed the whole course of this patient's uh, future. And it was great, because he went from being in a nursing home to being home again and uh, with his family, and that was great. So that does happen. I think doctors do have a tendency with the older population of assuming dementia, assuming a dementia. And I think we have to be really careful about that because there, there are differences, major differences. First of all, TBI patients usually show some improvement <laughs> um, over time, uh, hopefully. But there are other differences, too. So Question. Yeah, anecdotally, how many people do you think in the TBI kind of going through the rehab process do you guys have yeah. um, for traumatic brain injury or elderly? I know you may not have like, um, exact numbers, but when you think about it, and we think about traumatic brain injury, we we focus a lot on probably people in their teens and 20s right. and stuff. But do you get a lot of people? That's a great question. I would say no. I think we get more patients with Parkinson's disease who have cognitive decline, and there's a neurologist, Dr. Lee, who's really good about referring those patients because he wants to get a good baseline and then watch over time how they do. So I would say it's the population, the other neurological diseases and problems, or brain tumors. We get many more of those referrals in the elderly than we do TBI. No, we don't. Would you agree, Alex? I think we tend to see younger people, for sure, because those are the ones that are the most obvious. Because, for one thing, it has to do with return to work, and I'll mention that, too. Um, yeah, 
there because the elderly either are not returning to work or are, are underemployed, as a matter of fact, people that are aged, I say this already, that people who are aged 55 to 65 are the probably most underserved group um, because they're unemployable. You know, who wants to hire people you know, who are older and have a traumatic brain injury? Um, so that makes it more complicated, too. Um, for individuals with an initial diagnosis of MTBI, mild TBI, after age 65, the risk for diagnosis of dementia is reportedly three times greater than people without a history of, of TBI. That's pretty significant. Negative impact on cognition is greater than with younger individuals, but progressive loss of progressive function is observed both with older and younger populations, which is interesting. You know, like the ones we see with the neuroencephalopathies or the, um, can I think of the, the term for the soft brain? Anybody have it at the tip of their, uh, encephalomalacia. We see a lot of people with encephalomalacia years after the initial injury, and those people tend to have progressive losses. And I'm seeing that more and more with our patient, with one in particular that I'm working with right now. It's very sad. So the more significant the brain injury is, usually the worse the outcome um, over time is what we're seeing. Okay, so there's a separate, they're saying, the research says that there's a separate TBI sequelae than there is with Alzheimer's disease, for example. So we have to get better at separating them out and determining who has a dementia process versus chronic TBI. That, that's crucial according to the research. Um, so our work here as speech pathologists, since I'm here, may as well put in a plug here. Um, in the inpatient setting, I think consists mostly of monitoring the symptoms as the patients are recovering from the acute injury because the brain needs time to heal and rest, especially with regard to elderly people. They're going through a lot of acute changes while they're here. And I personally feel like if we're doing um, significant therapy, therapeutic intervention, it's probably too soon. I think the brain does need some time after the initial insult. So I think our job is mostly as monitors. And I don't know if my colleagues agree with that, but that's been my pattern in general, especially with the elderly and TBI. We're, we're dealing with swallowing issues because those are acute. You know, nutrition's key to recovering from TBI, right? So in my, in my view, swallowing is the most important issue initially, making sure that they have enough nutrition. Then when they go to acute rehab or they go to a sniff or they come back for, to see us as out, outpatients, we can really focus in on what they really bothers them. You know, what, what are you worried about? What, what aren't you able to do that you'd like to do kind of thing? Um, and then we can conduct our therapy from there. Um, another thing about TBI that's important is that even with the elderly, I think many people with TBI are focused on their physical injuries initially because they'll have fractures or they'll have weakness and they can't walk as well. So the cognitive stuff kind of gets put aside, right, until later on when they're home and they're saying, oh my God, you know, I can't, I don't know what to do. I, what am I supposed to do now? And, and they, they can't initiate, you know, or they can't plan their day. They have trouble with sleep, so they're tired all the time. So I find that that's, it's really important um, for doctors and other professionals, nurses, of course, to be aware at the front end of um, sequelae later on so we can make appropriate triage referrals. 
and not, not lose this population, because sometimes they get lost in the shuffle, especially the elderly. Um, any questions about oh, the long-term implications? Okay. I have a research article that outlines eight long-term implications for the care of clients with traumatic brain injury who are elderly. How are we doing? Good. All right. Patients with a family history of dementia, regardless of the severity of the TBI and a history of moderate to severe single-incident traumatic brain injuries or repetitive mild traumatic brain injuries, should be monitored over time as they age for increasing cognitive dysfunction. So, you know, just, just don't say, well, they're old anyway, kind of thing. They, the uh, long-term implications are that they should be closely monitored. And then a comprehensive assessment of the patient is necessary to differentiate the signs and symptoms of traumatic brain injury from the presence of the various dementias. That's important, too. I deal with a lot of patients with primary progressive aphasia. So people with brain injuries often have word retrieval problems, or they substitute the wrong word. And so do people you know, with PPA. So you have to look for progression and decline over time. And there are just certain characteristics that you learn how to sift out after a while, once you do it enough. And then you start saying, hmm, I think this is something other than TBI. Or I think, no, he doesn't have dementia. I think it, it is a traumatic brain injury. So oh, the other thing is early aggressive mental health health care. And that's where we run into financial and other problems, and Peggy knows. It's essential for survivors of TBI. I, Sharon Morgan, who's a nurse practitioner in neurosurgery, and I have a monthly TBI support group here. And that's one of the biggest complaints, that people don't have appropriate counseling. They don't know who to go to. They're, you know, they're chronically depressed, and they drive their caregivers crazy. Their spouses are divorcing them because you know, there's so many emotional issues. Um, so it says clinicians should be knowledgeable about and monitor clients for possible coexisting disorders, including PTSD, mood disorders, depression, suicide risk, and alcohol or drug addiction. You know, it's funny that I don't think we think of alcohol and drug addiction so much with the elderly as we do with the younger population, but it's, it's, they have them too, you know, if they're depressed especially. Um, an ongoing patient and family support is essential throughout the life of the patient. So going back to that key thing about TBI being chronic, it's not an acute thing anymore, and the national government now recognizes that, that we're not just dealing with you know, one or two therapy sessions and we're done. <laughs> or you know, the doctor says, oh, you can talk, you're walking, good, good to go. Not true. Older parent, uh, patients who suffer a traumatic brain injury need to be monitored with comprehensive team planning and treatment uh, for both treatment and discharge is the issue. Sometimes with an acute, in an acute care place like this, Patients are discharged to SNFs, say, or rehab facilities, and then forgotten. And oftentimes, with a traumatic brain injury, they can return home, maybe not so much with the elderly, um, but oftentimes they can, but they still have problems, and then they're kind of lost. You know, and if, it's, if the primary care providers aren't aware enough, they may uh, you know, not refer them for further treatment, and it's essential. And then falls prevention. All right, fall prevention plans for homes and facilities, including medication monitoring, instruction, and exercise, should be in place for older patients. You know, and even with the older population, 
I don't just talk with my younger patients about the, the value of exercise, because the research says that exercise is important at every age. And even with, you know, with dementia, too, it's essential that people stay active. Um, and prevention, of course, is huge. Donna Pigeon and others on PT are also very involved in that falls program. And the last thing they say is that patients should avoid excessive alcohol intake. The tricky thing with that, <laughs> I find with dementia patients in particular, is that you know they're, they're going to be depressed. And I think when family members hear no alcohol, you know, if they're socializing and they want to have one glass of wine, and the other person, you know, the wife or the husband say, says, no, you can't have it, that that even stimulates more depression. So you've got to be kind of careful about that, I think. In general, alcohol reduces acuity, brain acuity, and that kind of thing. Um, so this is, a, this is about the latest research, um, especially with the elderly. There isn't a lot out there because the focus is on um, physical injuries from, like, um, sports, you know, and um, the military, the IEDs and those kinds of injuries. But, but that's good, because that research is going to support us and what we do. Any questions about anything in particular? Just wondering what kind of um, screening or therapy you do. Good question. I, and I was planning to get into that. I was thinking I wouldn't have enough time, but maybe I do now. OK. Maybe because I talk fast. So. Um, we typically um, will do a lengthy patient interview. Um, and I sometimes will have the patient come in alone or with, with the caregiver or the spouse first, and then have the spouse leave, you know, the significant other leave, and then have the patient alone to so get the different opinions about what's happening. And I always ask, why do you think you're here? Because most of them say, I don't know. My doctor told me to come. They have no idea who I am, <laughs> what I do. Well, you're a speech therapy. My speech is fine. <laughs> you're a speech therapist, I mean. And so I have to do that explanation um, that we, we cover more than just the speech part. Um, hearing and vision screens are essential. And I think people forget that, that we can't do our jobs without patients having adequate hearing and adequate vision. And so even though we don't do a formal evaluation, um, we can refer to audiologists. We can refer to a neuro-ophthalmologist, for example, if they have visual perceptual problems. We have Dr. Kobelars here and uh, Susan Pepin, Dr. Pepin, uh, who are neuro-ophthalmologists. And we also have a wonderful technologist in that area. She's an ophthoptrist, I think, um, Dr. Schneekloth, Barbara Schneekloth. She's terrific with prisms. And the patients even come in to see us, and they'll say, oh, I understand that there's somebody who has this, this thing that I can put on my, my glasses. Because it's not a visual acuity problem. It's visual perception. It's very different. And, and I think it's hard for ophthalmologists to sort it out, too, even neuro-ophthalmologists. So anyway, vision is key, because oftentimes they'll come in and they'll say they can't uh, focus. Um, they reduced attention, because it's, it takes so much effort to see. Somebody I had just had today was an older person and told me that one eye seems to be darker, like Things are clearer with one eye than the other eye. And that can be frustrating, because you're trying to have the eyes work together, and they're not. So vision and hearing are essential. Then we'll give, I usually give a nonverbal as well as a verbal kind of test. We all give different things. Like Joe might give the Woodcock-Johnson, 
uh, memory test. And, <laughs> no. and um, I like the gamma. It's a general ability measure for adults. The reason why I like that is because it's age-normed. So, because you expect that the older people will have a little bit more difficulty. And so it takes that into consideration, I think, in the scoring. And so I like that. Um, and then we check their word retrieval skills with generative naming, object naming, just to see what the differences might be. And they listen to their spontaneous speech and conversational speech to see where they um, have difficulties. Um, I find that usually with the TBI patients, even in the elderly, that um, other than retrieving names of people, which is harder as you get older anyway, that the, the expressive um, speech and language is pretty good, tends to be pretty good. It's more short-term memory problems. So I use a computer program, and others, can, others do that too. There, there are lots of them out there. The Mayo Clinic is in the process of um, doing, using posit science, CogMed, but it's very expensive. So if I, if I assign it to my patients, they can't afford it. It's not out there cheap, cheaply enough. So there are other programs right now. What I do is if they can access a computer, even, in, even older people are computer savvy sometimes, I'll have them access these programs and I'll assess how they read the instructions, uh, how long it takes them, their processing speed, um, problem solving, memory, through the program. Because then you're kind of observing them actually, in act, actually working on the programs rather than doing a formal test where it's kind of contrived. I guess I like, I like a little bit more interactive um, testing. Um, what am I leaving out, Alex? Let's see. Right, like the RIPA, 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 <laughs> um, is, uh, but it's mostly an auditory test. So I, I try to mix up the auditory with the visual. The other thing, very important, I don't care how old you are, I have to find out what you, how successful you were in school. Are you academically inclined? Were you a hands-on learner? Um, what were your strengths? Were you better in math and English and history? It's key. It's essential. And half the time, these, these guys will say to me, no, I hated school. You know, I dropped out in the eighth grade. <laughs> well, that's important information because then it, it, it affects how, what kind of a homework program I set up for them. You know, they're not going to want to do a lot of written stuff that they never liked in the first place. So then I try to design more functional tasks for them. One thing that I think Joe, I, and Alex probably all do, oh, Jesse too, is um, having them keep a journal, a daily journal. Writing is one of the most complex cognitive tasks there is. And it also helps us to see what their emotional state is like, what their problems are at home, what they're encountering as difficulties. Um, you can check their grammar, their punctuation, their spelling, all that stuff too. But um, there's a, a, big, a bigger reason for me to do that. And, uh, and that way I can make the, the appropriate triage referrals to other professionals. Right now we have um, Deb Fournier, who was going to do this presentation, but she's, she's not unavailable, is the, the main triage person for TBI. And her loss is significant here. Without Deb, you know, <laughs> I have, we have to scramble around and make sure people know that we're here because she made so many referrals, we realized. And there's no backup for her. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can get people to do it. Can you describe some of the triage that you do? Because you do a lot of triage. I do do a lot of triage. Um, I, I've contacted the Brain Injury Association. I, I, I call the BIANH 
New Hampshire and Vermont. I use both those associations. I know the key people, and I try to set them up with home caregivers or care providers, care managers, they call them, if they don't have those. Um, I provide, the, I try to link the family members up with them, too. Um, oftentimes, um, I triage with other professionals, and I'm finding that if I, like, I can refer to neuropsych myself, which I didn't realize. I thought I had to go through a, but, oh, speaking of neuropsych, I don't usually recommend neuropsych evaluations for the elderly. They're, a, they're long and cumbersome for them, and they become very frustrated. I mean, the younger people are frustrated after five hours. So um, I prefer that unless they have to return to work in some high-level capacity, I would defer those. And, um, and it's not because I don't believe in them. It's just that I think they have their purpose. And I think they're very valuable if you need a professional with a PhD, you know, doctorate degree, to say, this person has these weaknesses so it can't return to work, or can with modifications, that kind of thing. Um, oftentimes, I'll refer to neuro-ophthalmology. Um, uh, uh, let's see, who else do we refer to? Audiology sometimes, too. All the other professionals that are involved, I guess. And psych is tough. I, I, I'm, I'm running against barriers. I'm up against barriers with the counseling because there aren't a lot of counselors who specialize in TBI. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm slowly locating places like Wallingford, Vermont, has a TBI program. The Seacoast has a program. Um, I, I'm finding that many speech-language pathologists avoid cognition because they think that it's not, if it's not linguistic, they think that they can't do it. For example, if it's just memory, or although, you know, language is involved in everything we do. Language is involved in cognition, too. So I think as more speech pathologists are becoming more comfortable doing it, we'll see more services. Because we're, we're pretty rural here. You know, so we, we have to scramble to figure out who to refer to. The other thing is that doctors have to be aware that not everybody lives near, near Hitchcock, and they can't all automatically come back here for services. Patients will come and say, it took me two hours to get here. I'm not going to be able to come back. I'm saying, yes, you're right. <laughs> Let me look into this for you. And so then I become a triage person to find somebody for them. Because the doctors do what's you know, convenient. OK, just come right back in. <laughs> um, so that's a biggie. They have to be within a reasonable distance and be willing to come in. So sometimes we'll make accommodations like um, we'll see them for once a month visits with a home program in between. Because the responsibility is largely on the patient. We're not doing it for them. You know, if they're not motivated, they're not going to improve anyway, no matter what I try to beat into them or what we, we try to do with them. So um, if they're faithful about doing their home program, come in, take suggestions, you know, make corrections, and take, it, take another program home with them, then that's viable. And Medicare will cover it. And Medicare also covers re-evaluations without even questioning. So say you see somebody for six months and they kind of plateaued, <laughs> you know, they, okay, I'm discharging. They go home, and a few months later, some of the old problems will crop up again. Um, or maybe it's going into a dementia process. They're not sure. So I recommend a re-eval. Bring it back in, then you can compare. You have some means of comparison. Um, does that answer that question about triage? Anything else? Anything remotely? It's not. <laughs> okay.
has a question at the risk of not being in the room when you may have actually covered this topic. Yeah, sure. Did you get into neuropsychological evaluation? Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. And um, what, what my take is, and you may disagree, is that with the elderly, I'm not saying elderly 55. <laughs> to me, that's not elderly. To me, 65 is an elderly. Hello. But <laughs> with, with older people, neuropsychological evaluations can be cumbersome. They're very time consuming. They last five hours usually. And even with a rest break, they bec pa patients become very depressed after them because they say, oh, I can't, I can't do anything. I mean, they're very challenging. So I feel like be very careful about who you refer for neuropsych testing, and the elderly especially, OK. Did I hear a question over here? Hmm. That's what we were saying. Something. I have uh, new triage for the blue team, which is NGIM, which is the geriatric team. And one of the things that we find as far as um, people falling and hitting their head, uh, one of the new barriers both ways is the family. Um, oh, no, they're fine. You know, because yeah. we automatically, if we find out they hit their head, yeah. we want to put them in for a CT scan. Right. Right. And we have, oh, they're fine. They're old. They're demented. It's, you right. know, it's okay. Just wanted to let you know. Um, and then three days down the road, it's like, oh my God, they're totally changed all their bed status. And yes. That's, you know, that's yes, that's Or we get the family that's, they fell, we want to see these again, we want neuropsychiatric eval, we want all this stuff. That's yes. And, you know, the poor patient kind of gets caught in the middle. Right, and they're confused as it is. So a lot of it is education, education, education. You know, we have handouts. We've got to get better about, of course, getting our professionals in to really explain things. But even then, I had an outpatient who recently came in with her husband. He, he came in with his wife. I'm sorry. It was a, the wife was the one who was resistant. And she said, well, he's got dementia. He doesn't need, you know, she was, she'd already made her mind up. But through the course of my evaluation, I was able to point out certain things that the patient could do and felt good about. And that's what you have to kind of focus on. Find the bright spots kind of thing and opportunity for success because the brain has neuroplasticity, as you know. So even the aged can improve. And that's with that particular scenario. And with the other one. It's a good point. Yes, and we appreciate those referrals. Because even if we don't do extensive therapy within patients, we can do an educational piece with patients and the families. If they, and um, doctors always think of swallowing. So sometimes we even assume we'll get a consult order that says at bedside, and we assume it's for swallowing. And then we get there and we find out, oh, no, they want a cognitive screen. So um, I think referrers have to get really good about specifying. You know, cognitive screen, please. Traumatic brain injury, something. Um, yeah. What space do you guys have in the outpatient clinic? And I ask that question legitimately because yeah. we get, I mean, yeah. it's one of those things to be careful what you ask for. Right. Because if your clinic's already full, yeah. then you want to start talking about doing like this screening for cognitive impairment in an outpatient setting for older adults who have fallen. That's an excellent, excellent question. You have to be selective. Yes. It is. That's a very good point, because it's, it's either, either in either area, inpatient or outpatient. 
although we do have seven day a week coverage now in inpatient, so we could probably <laughs> do those screens. But anyway, no, you have to be selective about it. You know, if you have a particularly difficult family, it's not quite understanding TBI, and you want to just get a quick screen with somebody else, another professional, there are many of us, not just in speech, um, OT, PT can help with that too, to talk with the family members. And doctors just have to be smart about it. Like, is this, how important is this referral? I think one of our neurologists tends to send um, screens for Parkinson's patients, and I, I've been meaning to get together with him because we can't just do, some, sometimes they're, they're perfectly normal, and I think that if their nurses are doing the MOCA and other screens in the office, they can eliminate the need for us until later on in the disease process. We don't need to do screens for every patient. Do you agree? My colleagues? Yeah. But I think this is specific to that question around TBI, because I think the blue team, or geriatric team, does a really good job of like MOCA slums, yeah. you know, the whole thing yeah. of like geriatric specific screening. True. So these are going to be much more specific to older adults who have fallen and hit their head. Yes. And are take, having a hard time recovering, because I'm sure like you guys get a bunch of phone calls you need on that stuff, but they're not recovering. And yeah. The, the triage process included sending them to rehab a little bit more. That goes back to the same thing of like time. Do you guys have time right now in the outpatient clinic to take? Well, you know, we, we're busy, but I, I hate to have them not be seen, too. I mean, you know, we have a two-hour block for evaluations. It's because we have report writing time, because it's, we're not supposed to necessarily use the whole two, two hours if we don't have to. And sometimes we can bring them back in if they're not too far away to do a, a follow-up. But, um, you know, you have to be kind of selective about it, too, I guess. I, I don't want to miss people either. And I think Deb Fournier is an example of someone who's gotten really good at knowing who to refer, you know, in general. Um, I mean, there, sometimes if she's stymied by cases that are very complicated, like Peggy knows, with complex emotional issues, that's a strain on us sometimes because we're not psychologists. But we, we do do psychological counseling <laughs> because there's nobody else to do it. And so we get pretty good at it, I think, in some ways, not as professionals. But um, so I think I would say we have to be selective about who we refer, and we have to listen to the patient's frustration and their their level. Because some patients will say, "I don't care. My wife wants me to come." You know, well, we're not talking about the wife. We're talking, about, you know. Um, so it's, I think it's it's a it's a good question, and I think it's complex because we can handle them all, for sure. But the ones we get in general tend to be good referrals, don't they, by and large? We have our staff coming on, so we do. Exactly. But an adjunct to that is that the higher, the, the brighter they are, the more <laughs> education they have, usually the harder, the more frustrated they are. So you can't eliminate all those either, those mild TBI patients who are very frustrated. Is someone trying to ask a question? It's giving feedback on from here, so I'm sorry. I don't know why it's doing that. Yeah. Maybe I'll just put it down here, maybe. Baseline mm -hmm. didn't allow for attention, understanding, and memory. Yes. Then new learning is difficult. So right. that would need to be in place at baseline. Right. 
I mean, I think that I think that on a on a bigger topic, I think that like if we were in a more of a system kind of way of looking at it, yeah. is that if we were really talking about doing something out of our own internal medicine clinic or something like that, I do think that you guys would be pretty good about knowing where's where people's base. I mean, they know the patients well, and I would imagine that with very little effort, yes, to be able to pick out and say this is exactly the right kind of person to send. Versus the other way. I do agree with you that it's helpful when providers put those referrals in. Yes. But I but also think that if you're looking for the yes. most bang for your buck, here's another suggestion too. We have a TBI support group that meets once a month. They can always be referred to the group because we sometimes separate the group into the survivor group and the caregiver group. There are two of us who facilitate the meetings. So we'd be happy to listen to their concerns and provide education. Yeah. That's another opportunity to survive. I know it's early on because you're talking about inpatients. No, this so is all outpatients. You're talking about outpatients. Yeah. Well, oh, outpatient. None of this is inpatient stuff. Oh, this that's is good. all outpatients. Because oh. you said the blue team. Okay. Well, that, gotcha. The blue team is the outpatient team on the, in the general internal medicine. I didn't even know that. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's an internist. Oh, that's We're right. There's a medicine team, too. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. They but, need to get that's good to clarify that. first. No, that was an excellent question because we do get those situations where the family members don't really understand and they need a lot of education. And uh, we'd be happy to do that. I think, and yeah. I think, this, I think the support group for um, family members is essential. I mean, living yeah. with someone with a TBI, you know, the, the person has changed and the family needs just as much assistance to keep Almost know, more. providing the assistance for their loved ones. And yeah. unfortunately, with a lot of TBI people, All the people that I should turn this off. All the people that show up are um, in the process of getting a divorce or separation, and so we just talked about that and some of the issues and let them vent. And um, so whatever we take them from where they are, kind of, and we have educational opportunities too, which is nice about being a big hospital like this. We can have an endocrinologist come in, talk about the endocrine system and how TBI is affected or affects the endocrine system. Um, Neuroimmunologists have come. OTs have come to talk about how to structure your day. We offer a lot of that, too. Did you, did you mention the New Hampshire Traumatic Brain Injury Association? I only say that yes. because I know there's people who are off-site and they were looking for information. Yes, as a matter of fact, they have 800 numbers. Do you want that? Can I work around? I know we've got to wrap up here soon, Mary. Yep. Yep, I have that. I made a point to write that down because they have some good resources. And, and Vermont, too, but I deal with um, New Hampshire more often. Okay, it's 1-800-444-6443, or check the B-I-A-N-H website. Vermont also has the, the Vermont Brain Injury Association website. I don't have their number offhand. Any questions off-site? I was wondering, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, my yes. name is Colleen. I'm an RN here. I'm doing triage in Nashua. Um, just wondering, do you um, do you ever a satellite? Did your group ever come to other campuses to, to do like these meetings uh, for these families who who need that support? You had mentioned that you meet a couple of times a month for for the families and the and the patients. But you know what? Um, we actually meet once a month here at Hitchcock, but there are um, support groups all over the state. And if you, um, even the Valley News has a listing, 
listings. And if you call the Brain Injury Association of New Hampshire, they'll give you the list of all the support groups in the state. There are, there are tons of them. Okay. The only difference with our group is that we have professionals who are facilitating the group so we can offer more educational opportunities. Most of them are run by survivors or um, just volunteers from the community, which is wonderful that we have that. And so check into those. Okay, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, we, you had said, mentioned that it's very difficult to get um, mental health care for these people. With, and, you know, the, a lot of these young, I know I'm very familiar with two um, friends of mine that both their sons had um, traumatic brain injuries and, um, and they were substance abuse um, users before their accidents. And now they're still using uh, substances and with a brain injury. And I find that it seems to be a big problem and they don't seem, their families don't seem to be able to get any mental health. Um, do you see uh, anywhere where that's going to improve or seeing how you're so close to the... You know, to be honest with you, that's a cause of real frustration for all of us and I think in our current financial climate it's not looking good. But um, it's something that we're all aware of and the Brain Injury Association of New Hampshire is compiling a list of counselors right now um, from my request and some other people. Um, because we need a comprehensive list of mental health providers. Uh, and Peggy, Peggy here in the, at Hitchcock might know some names too. I don't know. I don't know names, but I know, I mean, mental health in general has been um, decimated within the state in terms of funding. Oh, yeah. And there was that lawsuit over the last year that, you know, put in some more funding. So I think it really requires um, grassroots lobbying. So I think the Brain Injury Association lobby for specificity and, and services. Yes. And, and maybe maybe colleges need to be aware to, you know, have their students go into, yeah. you know, psych. Yeah. Yeah. So That's I think true. it has to be a legislation. Yeah. yeah. Legislation. Yes, and you know the Brain Injury Association of New Hampshire is very active with the, lo the lobbying, and they send out newsletters. And um, so make sure you contact them because they have a lot of information. All right, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? All right, thank you. You're welcome.